0: Hi, this is Pastor Nelson Mercado. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast from the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. I hope you are blessed by today's message. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you again for the promise that we've been hearing, that you will take care of us, that nothing happens that escapes your attention, and, and that you will always hear our prayers. We can always trust and depend upon you. So we praise you. We honor you. And yet again, we pray for your presence and your spirit as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I uh, forgot to remind you that that there is lunch afterwards, so please stay for fellowship lunch after our service. You have a study guide inside your bulletins. For those that have not joined us before, uh, we are in our present truth series based on the book The Present Truth and the Three Angels Messages. And um, we are actually on the 11th session or 11th presentation of this series. And and two weeks ago, we started with the second angel's message. And so we are continuing with the second angel's message. uh, Babylon is fallen, part two, and the subheading of the change of God's law. And so let's uh, start by looking at uh, the scripture passage, uh, Revelation 14, 8. This is the second angel's message. Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And you'll see the... uh the, uh, in your study guides, the words that are in the blanks are underlined on the screen. So this is the second angel's message. And so we looked at Babylon. Remember Babylon, we, we talked about Babylon. How, what does the fall of Babylon have to do with anything here in the end time? And for us to understand the role of end time Babylon, we had to look at the role of Babylon throughout Scripture. And we looked at the Old Testament. Remember Babylon was one of the first cities that was built. And in our study of the Old Testament, we, we could see clearly that Babylon... Babylon is an end-time, when we talk about end-time Babylon, is a religious political power that opposes God and oppresses his people and also confuses the world. So this is the role of end-time Babylon. Now, uh, in order to identify Babylon, of course, we went also to the Old Testament, specifically the book of Daniel chapter 7, and this little horn power that, as we saw, it's the same entity as Babylon. So we looked at the characteristics of this little horn, and so just as a matter of review, let's, let's go over these characteristics one by one. The first one, it comes from the head of the fourth beast, and from among the ten horns. Now, who remembers who the head, who, who the fourth beast represents? Rome, right? So, so this little horn comes from the head of Rome. Now, notice that, uh, remember that when Daniel sees the fourth beast, uh, he sees the fourth beast already with its ten horns. These ten horns were are representative of the ten nations that divided Rome in 476 A.D., just like the ten toes of Daniel chapter 2. So they're already in place when Daniel sees this beast, and at some point after that, this little horn comes from among them, but it's from the head of the, of the, of the fourth beast. So it comes from Rome. And by the way, remember, we, we talked about the fact that we have already identified we know but based on our previous studies that this little horn is none other than papal rome or roman catholicism but what we wanted to see is if these characteristics fit and so the first one we know that fits number 2 the horn as the horn rises is destroyed 3 of the the horns now who remembers what, the three horns that were destroyed by the little horn Veruli? Vandals? And Ostrogoths, right? Okay. Right. Now, who remembers the year that the Ostrogoths were destroyed? The last, because that's, that's an important year. You're, you're, you're on the right track. 538 A.D. So notice, remember, it come, uh, the first one, it comes from the head of the fourth beast and from among the ten horns, and then as the little horn rises, it... it it destroys three so uh, obviously again the ten horns are already present when Daniel sees this beast so that means that the the visions of Rome already happened in 476 AD sometime after Which is 538 A.D. The little horn comes to power, and as it comes to power, it destroys three little horns, uh, three of the of of the horns. The Heruli and the Vandals and the Ostrogoths. We know that applies to to Papal Rome because the Bishop of Rome was this entity that, together with the other nations, destroyed the Heruli, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths because they were Arian tribes. Remember that they they didn't believe in the divinity of Jesus. All right. That's number two. Number three, the, the little horn has eyes like the eyes of a man, and, and a mouth speaking pompous words. We saw that the eyes are, are a symbol of intelligence, rationality. There is a a man a, a behind this this entity, the papacy, and we know, of course, the pope itself. So it is a person and speaking pompous words. Who remembers what pompous words meant? Blasphemy, Blasphemy right? blasphemy Uh, uh, we know from from the word of jesus from the word of god from the fact that jesus himself was accused of blasphemy because he claimed to be god and he claimed to forgive sins and of course jesus can do that because jesus is god but any man that does that is blasphemy we know that the pope refers to himself this office as the vicar of god the word vicar of god simply means a representative of god but the representative of god on the world is who the Holy Spirit. So if I call myself the Holy Spirit, that would be blasphemy, right? So we know it, 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 uh, it applies, it fits. And of course, claiming to forgive sins, we know that Roman Catholicism, it's uh, as part of their doctrine. It starts from the top, from the Pope and to its priests, that they claim to be able to forgive sins. That is blasphemy or pompous words. So characteristic number three fits. Number four, His appearance is greater than his fellows. Remember that that you have the horns, and this one is little in comparison to the other horns, but it becomes greater. It's greater in influence. It's greater in influence in the world. And we know that to be true indeed with uh, uh, the Pope. Remember that the Vatican is uh, the smallest uh, uh, city-state in the world, Uh, it's part of Rome, but it's its own entity, the uh, the Vatican is. So it's very small in comparison to the other nations, but it's more influential. So in that sense, it's become greater. Number five, it made war against the saints of the Most High and prevailed against them. So it's a persecuting power. And we know, of course, this to be true because history tells us it is true. And we know this to be true because Roman Catholicism acknowledges it to be true. We know that persecution happened with the Inquisition, the, the, the massacre of St. Bartholomew, the Thirty Years' War. I mean, millions of Protestants, uh, Christians were killed. And so we know that this to be true as well. Number six, it is different than the other horns. And we talked about the difference in the sense that while the other horns are political powers, this one is political, but it's religious as well as the head of a church. So now in that sense, it is different. Number seven... It shall intend to, change, intend to change times and laws. This is talking about the commandments of God. And by the way, this is where we left off last time. And then number eight, it has a power for a limited time. In this case, a time, times, and half of a time. So we left off here. The seventh characteristic in verse 25. And it says that it shall intend to change times and laws. It shall intend to change times and and law. Now, we, we've talked about already, uh, as part of the series, the importance of God's law. We keep God's law. Why? Because we love Jesus, right? Because it is a response to the salvation, the free gift of salvation that he has offered. And obviously, the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment, is part of God's law. And we keep the Sabbath because we love jesus right because we love jesus but uh, the reason that the truth about the sabbath is part of the present truth is because as we know the majority of christians today keep a different day right they keep the first day of the week so why is sunday kept as the day of rest by most christians instead of the seventh day sabbath well to be sure it didn't happen overnight this not, they didn't walk up one night and say, we're going to do this. This was a process that started in the first century, and it leads all the way to the Catholic Church may, a change in the solemnity of the, uh, the Sabbath to Sunday. And, and, and they acknowledge this, of course. For example, we have the converts Catechism of the Catholic Church. Um, some of you know that I grew up Catholic, and as a child, I had to take my catechism classes in order to be able to do my first communion. I don't know if any of you grew up Catholic, you had to do your first communion. And so you had to take catechism classes. And I remember, as it, like it was today, we went to this, um, this was in, in New Jersey, uh, uh, this old church in the basement of this old, musty church. And, um, and, and a, a, a nun was giving us the, these classes. And, and so the converse catechism is sort of, a, it's sort of like a pamphlet, sort of a summary of the catechism, because the catechism is a thicker book. But the main doctrines, the main teachings uh, are in that Converse Catechism, so that's what they teach you. And I remember, even I think I was six or seven years old, looking at this in the back of this Converse Catechism, they have a QA and a section. And I remember looking at these questions that said, the first one, which is the Sabbath day? Answer, Saturday is the Sabbath day. Question, why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Uh, answer, we observe Sunday instead of Saturday because the Catholic Church in the Council of Laodicea, 336 AD, transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. And, you know, I remember reading that and I thought, well, okay, well, what's the big deal, right? I, I didn't, you know, think nothing of it. Uh, understand that Catholicism believes that they have the authority to change God's law. They, they, they have what is called holy tradition and in, their, and in their beliefs, holy tradition supersedes what the Word of God says. And so this is what they did, and they acknowledged it. They changed it, and the reason for it, why? Why did the Catholic Church change, substitute uh, the Seventh-day Sabbath for Sunday? And the answer is because why? Well, Jesus resurrected on it, right? Yeah. Jesus resurrected on Sunday, and the Holy Ghost descended upon the apostles on Sunday. Now, there's no discussion about here. We know that Jesus resurrected on Sunday, right? There's no question there. But notice, again, they acknowledge the change. And this is important because, unfortunately, our, our Christian friends, our Protestant Christian friends, they spend a, a lot of time trying to find a, a scriptural justification for Sunday. But they ignore, either they ignore or they don't know the history, because when we look at the origin of it, the church acknowledges it. Catholicism acknowledges it. We did it. The reason that, that, that Sunday is because, because we changed it. That's the only reason. Okay? That's the only reason. Now, again, we don't deny the fact Christ rose on Sunday. Yes, absolutely. The Holy Ghost descended upon, uh, um, upon the apostles on a Sunday. The issue is, is this a reason? Is this a good reason enough for the change? Can we find anything in Scripture that tells us this is what we ought to be doing? Well, let's, let's take it from their own uh, writings. James Cardinal Gibbons in the book, The Faith of Our Fathers. This is this is from a Catholic himself. But you may read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and you will not find a single line authorized in the sanctification of Sunday. The Scriptures enforce the religious observance of Saturday, a day which we never sanctify. Now, understand that it's easy for him to make this statement because remember... In their minds, they have the authority. We have the authority to change this. So it's not a big deal for him to say, yeah, the Bible says this, but because holy tradition supersedes the Bible, we did it. It's not a big deal. You know, we read that and say, well, whoa, that's a big, how can he say such a thing? But understand that in our mind, they have the authority. So the Bible is secondary to holy tradition, to the authority that they believe the church has. Okay? And so here, again, from a, from a priest himself, he acknowledges that this is the case. That this is the case. Okay, now, again, our Protestant friends uh, will try to find a scriptural reason for Sunday, and um, some say that that Sunday is given preeminence over the seventh-day Sabbath in the New Testament. Now, I remember uh, as a Catholic, uh, I was a teenager. I used to be part of this ministry in the church in Puerto Rico. Um, that was named after Pope John XXIII, um, and I was very involved in this ministry, and, and I was always very involved in the church, and we had meetings, it was, uh, I think it was like prayer meetings on Wednesdays, and we would get together, and, and they would teach us a couple of things and that kind of thing. It was more of a social thing, but I remember one particular meeting, it was, uh, it was being led by a, a layperson who wasn't a, a priest. He was actually a school teacher because I knew him because he taught in my school. But he was a lay person. He was very involved in the church, and so everybody respected him. And, and there was a Q&A section during the meeting, and somebody asked about the Sabbath. And he went on to say, he said, well, the fact is, the, the, the Sunday is mentioned more in the New Testament than the Sabbath is. And, you know, unfortunately, because people don't read their Bibles, it's, like, oh, okay, yeah, well, that's, that's right, you know, and they believe it. And so, so obviously there are passages in the New Testament that mention Sunday or the first day of the week. Okay. The issue is we need to look at these passages to see if they say what people claim that they say. Does that make sense? So let's look at these passages, these Sunday passages, as it were, uh, passages that uh, mention the first day of the week. And the first one is John chapter 20, verse 19. John chapter 20, and verse 19. Then the same day at evening being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst midst and said to them, Peace be with you. So the argument that is made here is, well, there is an assembly, the disciples assembled, it happened on the first day of the week, so this must have been been a worship service. And and the argument, of course, is this is the first worship service on sunday because this was the resurrection day so they were assembled already on the first day of the week so they already knew that the sabbath was going to be changed to sunday but now we saw from the uh the rationale from the the converse catechism that the reason sunday was changed is in honor of the resurrection of jesus when they when the disciples first assembled there in the upper room did they know jesus had resurrected they didn't have that. They, they, they didn't have that knowledge yet. Okay. Now Jesus appears to them afterwards. But when they first assembled there, they're not there because they didn't. They didn't know Jesus as a director. So clearly, they could not be meeting in honor of the resurrection of Jesus if they didn't know Jesus had resurrected yet. The passage itself tells us why were they, why were they there? Why were they meeting? And why was it? Because they were afraid. Now, why were they afraid? Did they have reasons to be afraid? You know, the, the, the powers that be already killed Jesus, and so if they killed Jesus, they're certainly next. So they're afraid, and so they huddle together because they're afraid, the fear of the Jews. So it tells you there right there what, what the reason is. So notice they were assembled, the reason they were assembled had nothing to do with a service in honor of the resurrection of Jesus, because they had not known that yet. They were there because of fear of the Jews, and of course Jesus does appear to them and makes it clear, here, here I am, I did resurrect. Okay, but that wasn't the reason not they got got them there in the first place. It was because they were afraid. And that's all that passage is saying. There's no indication in John 20, 19 that this was a meeting because, oh, this was the first worship service on Sunday. So that's the first one. That's John 20, verse 19. Let's look at the next one. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I have given orders to the church of Galatia, so, so you must do also on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that, he may, that there may be no collections when I come. So the argument that is made there is, well, there's a collection for the saints, so there's an offering being collected, and it's on the first day of the week, so this must be a worship service where they're collecting an offering. That's basically the, the, the rationale that is made with this passage. All right? But listen, it, context is important, isn't it? Amen. Context is important. When you read context, and, and reading context, it, it, it may mean reading the whole chapter, it may mean reading the entire 1 Corinthians, but it may mean reading the whole Bible. Amen. Context. When you read the book of Acts and the rest of the writings of Paul, you may remember that there was a problem in Jerusalem. What was the problem in Jerusalem? Well, there was persecution, but mainly they were going through some financial issues. There was famine in Jerusalem. Yeah. And, and we know that because Paul talks about it. We see it in Acts. We see it in the rest in other of our books that he wrote. So here, he, he has a special project in mind. So notice, the Apostle Paul was promoting a, promoting a special project consisting in collecting funds for the church in Jerusalem, which was undergoing severe economic problems. You know if, if, you know, if even today, you know, if, if we know of a church that is going through issues that we can help with, we, we may decide to do a project. Let's collect an offering for, you know, XYZ church, Okay, We're helping those that are in need. We're helping our brothers and sisters. And so this is what Paul is telling. He, he's, he's trying to recruit the Corinthian church. Listen, we need to help out. But now there, there is one thing that happened here. He doesn't mention the first day of the week. And, and this is the argument that people made. well, it's the first day of the week, it must be a, 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 a church service. But back in those days, things were a little different than they are today. See, back in those days, um, each person on the first day of the week was to decide from the previous week's earnings how much they could collect, basically. So, I, you know, it's different, right? So on the first day of the week, they could say, "All right, this is how much I made, and now I know how much I can afford to give to this offering. And notice that Paul says, lay it aside. It doesn't say bring it to the temple. He said, lay it aside. In fact, other versions of the Bible tells, you know, they explain it. They say, basically, lay it aside in your home. Because the idea here is that Paul did not want to come when he arrived, and now he has to talk to people for them to decide, well, I don't know how much I can give. No, he wanted them to have that settled already. So on the first day of the week, like it's customary, you evaluate your, your, your earnings and whatever you can afford, lay it aside so when I come, it's already done. It's ready. That's all this passage is saying. So notice, it is a bookkeeping issue rather than an act of worship. Amen. And that's all that passage says, friends. You, you'd have to read into it in order to come to the conclusion that this is a worship service. But you've got to look at context, friends. You've got to look at context. All right, let's look at the next one. Acts chapter 20, verses 7 through 11. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, and in a window a certain young man named Eutychus. What was his name? Eutychus, kind of a strange name, right? I should name my grandchild Eutychus. (laughs) Eutychus was sitting, was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep. As Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him. He said, do not trouble yourself, for life is in him. Now when he had come up, Had broken bread and eaten, and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. Now I'll acknowledge that from the three passages, this is probably the hardest one to explain. Because it talks about the fact that it was the first day of the week, Paul was speaking, and they were breaking bread together. So again, the idea is, well, well, Paul must have a sermon, they're having communion service, on the first day of the week, so this must be your worship service, <laughs> all right? But we need to break these things down a little bit to see what is actually being said. So let's let's first talk about breaking bread. They were breaking bread together. Now, th- this term breaking bread sometimes does refer to communion. First Corinthians chapter ten, we see it there. It does refer to communion, but it doesn't always refer to communi- communion. So how do we know the difference between when it refers to communion and when it doesn't refer to communion? It starts with a C. Context. 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 That's right. That's right. Let's look at an example of where this is. Listen, you guys should know this by now. Context, context, context. Context. It's my favorite word. Let's look at Acts chapter 2, verse 46. So continuing daily. How often was it? Daily. Daily. With one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. So notice here that Luke says that they broke bread every day from house to house. Now, obviously, back then, they didn't have temples like we do today. They didn't do that. They met in houses. But here, this happened daily. So when you look at this term, breaking bread, most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, it refers simply to sharing a meal. And we, don't we use that kind of colloquialism in our vernacular sometimes? Let's break bread together. What does that mean? Let's go out for lunch. Let's, you know, I'll buy you a dinner. You know, let's share a meal together. So again, while breaking bread can refer to communion, that's not only the case. Most of the time, it means they're sharing a meal together. But now, why was Paul meeting on the first day of the week? Why was he preaching on the first day of the week? Now, mind you, we call it preaching. The passage doesn't say he was preaching. He spoke, right? He spoke till midnight and then until daybreak. So why? I mean, doesn't that prove that this is a worship service on the first day of the week? Well, I don't only preach on Sabbath, by the way. (laughs) Now, it's important to point out, first of all, that this is a nighttime meeting. This is a meeting that takes place at night. We know that because it tells us there there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. It was dark. And then it says Paul spoke until what time? Midnight. 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 So this was a nighttime meeting. And and this is significant because, as some of you know, when in Bible times, the new day started at midnight? When, When was it? Sunset, right? So here we know that after sunset... The new day starts. So notice, this meeting started sometime after the sun was set on what we know as Saturday night. Right? Because in our day, you know, it's until midnight. On what we, on, we know as Saturday night, but already Sunday evening in biblical times. So Paul started to speak, and his speech extended until midnight. Now... Obviously, most of the time when people think about Sunday as they worship, this is a morning service, not an evening one. So this started in the evening, and there's a reason for this. There is a reason why they were meeting, and it starts at the beginning on, uh, of the passage where it says that Paul was getting ready to do what? He was leaving the next day. He was leaving the next day. Now, when, when, when hopefully if I am called Sherman to a different district, from here, hopefully, they'll do some kind of get-together for me here, Carla, right? Like, like a farewell kind of thing, right? You meet together, you have some food. I'm not, you, you see what I'm saying? You, you do a farewell thing. Now, this would not be all that significant. Okay, Paul was getting ready to leave the next day, and so they have a get-together. And, and, and when you get a get-together and you get a preacher in the room, what's the preacher going to do? You can't you can't shut them up. <laughs> you know that's what Paul does. But now, some scholars believe that the only reason this incident is even mentioned in the Book of Acts was because of what took place after midnight. Right. So there was a miracle that took place. One there. So Paul, think about it. Paul is talking. I don't know what he's talking about. Don't know the temperature in the room. But he's talking and he's talking and talking. It's like a visual. You have a, you've ever been in a prayer visual? It goes over in the night and there's people speaking and, every kind, every, and all that. But, but sometimes people do fall asleep, right? <laughs> Say it isn't so. So, so. so Eutychus, we're told that he's sitting on, on the windowsill. And he's, you, can, you can imagine him going there. And all of a sudden, whoop, falls backwards. <laughs> Third story, gets killed by the fall. And so what does Paul do? He goes downstairs and he embraces them. In other words, Paul, through the gift of, uh, of healing through, through Christ, resurrects this young man. That's a miracle, isn't it? And he resurrects himself. Man, everybody's happy. Oh, well, let's go right back up, upstairs and finish our gathering. And he continues speaking. There's a lot of energy in Paul. Yeah, he, he continues speaking until daybreak, and then he leaves the next day. That's all the passage is saying. Okay, Now, if this was the new Sabbath, certainly Paul didn't keep it well because if he were to leave the next day and, and walk several miles, that was contrary to Sabbath regulations. So he didn't really keep that day right. But this is all this passage is saying, friends. Again, this is probably the most difficult one, but when you break it down piece by piece, you realize this is only a farewell address. Paul is gathering, they're sharing a meal together, they're having a potluck because he's leaving, and, and a miracle takes place. After the miracle, he speaks, speaks till the morning and then leaves. That's all that is say. Now, the next few passages, I grouped them together. Because they all pretty much say the same thing. It's a description of the day that Jesus resurrected. Again, we're not arguing against the fact that Jesus resurrected on Sunday. He did. The issue is, was that a, reason, a good reason enough for, for the change? So all this, these passages say the same thing. Well, Mary and Martha came to the tomb and blah, blah, blah. You know what? You know the story. You know Jesus. They went to the tomb. They wasn't, Jesus wasn't there. This is all they said. And so again, these passages together, be, uh, because all of them mention the first day of the week in connection with the events that took place surrounding the resurrection of Jesus. Okay? So now... We saw the seventh characteristic of this little horn and said it will intend to change times and law. The only law that has to do with time is what? It's the fourth commandment, the one, that, the, the Sabbath commandment. So we see that this characteristic fits because, as we already saw from James Cardinal Gibbons from the Catholic Catechism, and there's plenty others, they acknowledge we change the, uh, the Sabbath to Sunday. So, does it fit? The seven characteristic fits. It fits. Let's look at the eighth one. The little horn, the little horn power, papal Rome, rules for a set time, a set period of time. A time, times, and half of the time. So what does, does this all mean? Well, the word time in Scripture often is used to mean a year. Daniel chapter 4 is an example of that. If you haven't read Daniel chapter 4, it's really a, a, a great chapter, very interesting, because we find that God continues to pursue Nebuchadnezzar. He's, here's a pagan king, and he continues to pursue him because he wants to save Nebuchadnezzar. Aren't you glad that God continues to pursue you and then he, he doesn't give up on you? He could have given up on Nebuchadnezzar, but he kept pursuing him. And so here in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is so proud. Oh, look at the kingdom that I have built. And God had been trying to reach him, and he was hard-headed. And so God says, all right, I know what I'm going to do. You're going to be turned into some kind of beast for, and it says, for seven times. Seven times will pass until you finally acknowledge that I am God, basically. Now, some of you may think, well, that's kind of strange that he was turned into some kind of beast. But do you realize there is actually a a mental illness called lycanthropy? That, that's basically what it is. So this is what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He was turned, he behaved, and even started to look like a beast. This is actually a, a, a medical, you can look it up, lycanthropy. But anyway, historians tell us that for some reason, um, Nebuchadnezzar's reigning, and all of a sudden he's gone. And nothing, well, they're wondering, what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? He wasn't out there conquering other kings or anything. He simply disappeared for a period of seven years. And after seven years, he comes back, and he's reigning again like nothing happened. So seven times, seven years. So this is why we know that the word time is is often used to mean a year. Okay? But now, in Bible prophecy, one prophetic day equals what? A little year. We see some passages there. Uh, that show the trend. None of these passages, by the way, say, you know, a prophetic day equals a little year. But when you read the context of those passages, we see that this is something that is is part of the trends. And it's interesting that in Luke chapter 13, Jesus himself uses the language uh, of three days uh, as in three years. So uh, we know that this is something, by the way, uh, um, it's not only something that only Adventists believe. Other religions, other denominations have come to the same conclusion when they study Bible prophecy. All right, but let's break this down. Let's break this down knowing this. So you have a time, which is one year. It says 360 days because, of course, Daniel's a Jew. So he, has, he uses the Jewish reckoning. Two uh, Times, plural, two years, 720 days, plus half of a time, which is half of a year, 180 days. Add it all together, it's three and a half years or 1,260 days. But now, using our, our, way, our way of interpreting time prophecy where a prophetic day equals a literal year, that means that time, times, and half of a time equate to 1260 literal years. Are you with me? Okay. All right, so now, where in history can we find or can we see this little horn power, papal Rome, ruling for 1260 years? Now I remember asking you what the date, what was the year that the Ostrogoths were conquered? Five thirty-eight AD. A.D. Let me show you a statement from the book Daniel by William Shea. Share some history. He says the transition from Imperial Rome to Medieval Rome took place in the sixth century A.D. With this transition, Imperial Rome faded away, and the papacy came to the forefront occupying the position of leadership in Rome, vacated by the political power. The particular point at which the papal power began to be realized was when the Ostrogoths' control over Rome was lifted when? 538 A.D. So in other words, 538 A.D., now the bishop of Rome rises unopposed. And now he has all the power that he wants. And so if we put this in a graph and do some math, 538 A.D., When the Bishop of Rome rises and opposes, you add 1,260 years to that, that takes you to what year? 1798 1798 A.D. So that must mean that something significant must have happened in 1798 that would sort of put an end to the Bishop of Rome, the power of the Bishop of Rome. Did something significant happen then? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it tells us on February 15th, 1798, French General Berthier, the post, Pope Pius VI, exiled him to France, where he died a year later in 1799. So remember, Revelation 13 talks about this beast receiving a deadly wound, because the beast of Revelation 13, the first one, is also the same power that we're looking at, the little horn and then Babylon, receives a deadly wound where the influence and power of the papacy had, uh, had had throughout the Dark Ages comes to an end. So we see that the eighth characteristic fits because it rules for a set period of time, which was 1,260 years, and it goes from 538 A.D. when the Pope rises and opposes all the way to 1798 when the power comes to an end. So does the eighth characteristic fit? It does. It does. So the little horn power that caught Daniel's attention in Daniel chapter 7 refers to none other than papal Rome. It represents the transition from imperial pagan Rome represented by the fourth beast to the ecclesiastical phase of the papal power. So it all fits. But now let's return to Babylon. Last uh, Two weeks ago when we talked we saw that Babylon, Revelation end time Babylon is a religious political power that defies God oppresses his people and confuses the world. Thus, Babylon is the enemy of God's people. Would you say? Yes. Yes. Furthermore, we saw that the Apostle John, like the early Christian church, already was referring to Rome as Babylon, which he described in Revelation 17 as an impure woman, a prostitute. And we know that a woman represents what? the church. In this case, it is an impure church. And we ask the question, does history provide us with a religious political power, which in turn is also a church, and with its base in Rome? And the answer, of course, is yes. That's Papal Rome or Roman Catholicism. And remember that although we mention Roman Catholicism, we are not here to bash Roman Catholicism. There are many great Christians in the Roman Catholic Church. The Church does great things around the world, but the Bible does point to this, and we must look at what the Bible says and share this and share it with love. Share it with love. But now let's go back to Revelation 14, 8. Because it says, And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Why is Babylon fallen? What's the reason for this judgment upon Babylon? Well, the passage tells us. Right? The passage tells us. Why is Babylon fallen? Because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So, what are these fornications that cause this judgment upon Babylon? Well, to that you to have to wait till next week. We will continue our series next week, part three of the Second Angel's Message: Babylon is fallen. We're going to look at what are these fornications. So, hope you can join us next week. We need to know this, this, this stuff because the hour is coming, friends. Jesus is coming soon. We don't, we don't know the hour, but we know he's coming. Thanks for joining us. If you're ever in the Nashville area, come and visit us at the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. We're located at 2800 Blair Boulevard in Nashville, Tennessee. You may also visit us at nfsda.org.